Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. We're talking about digital currency in this episode of our podcast, and it's really quite a steep learning curve for me, education wise. I do know that there's going to be a day coming before the not too distant future when I will probably have a whole digital wardrobe, which I've purchased with digital currency from a digital wallet. But I have to say, I'm quite far off that. Claudine, I am a closet crypto bro. (laughs) And I bought as a gift something called Bitcoin Cash and a tiny slice of Ethereum. And when the value of those cryptocurrencies went up, I was hugely popular and that was a great gift. When the value of those currencies went down, it had rather the opposite effect on my reputation (laughs) as a gift giver. But we're not necessarily talking entirely about cryptocurrency today, although we are talking about the gradual digitalization of money. By the end of this episode, we hope to give you a pretty clear picture of how governments, companies, and individuals are going to transact financially. Central bank digital currencies can change the way all of us use money, from something as simple as buying a cup of coffee to how banks transfer money between themselves. But getting it right is not this the decision of central banks, it's a decision of finance ministries and foreign ministries all around the world, and it will shape the future of finance over the course of the decade and beyond. That's Josh Lipsky, the senior director of the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomics Center. So we've been tracking the rise of central bank digital currencies for the past two years, and we run this project, the CBDC Tracker Project. And when we started this, there were 35 countries around the world looking at a CBDC. That was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, in our latest edition that we just published, there are 105 countries around the world exploring CBDC, representing over 95% of global GDP. And if you break that down, and you can see this in our interactive database, Over 50 countries are in what we would call an advanced phase of CBDC development. This means they're actually developing a CBDC or they're piloting a CBDC or they fully launched a CBDC to everyone in their country. That includes Nigeria's eNaira project, for example, the Bahamas, China's digital currency, which gets a lot of attention, the ECNY is still in pilot project, but 250 million people are using it. So that's a pretty big pilot project, more than the size of most countries. Now, there's a few other key findings we see. First is that 10 countries have fully launched. Jamaica is a very good example of that. And we can learn a lot from what these countries are doing, how it's working within their economies, how many people are using it, how it interacts with cryptocurrency, how it interacts with traditional banking money. So we can discuss what we're seeing on the ground. But the point is that we don't have to learn from scratch. We can learn from the innovations that are happening around the world. 
The second point is that 16 of the G20 economies are actually in an advanced phase of development or pilot or fully launched. And it's only the US, the UK, and Mexico, which are still in the research phase. And Argentina is the only G20 economy that hasn't said if they want to do it or not. So people often ask us, oh, yes, a lot of countries are doing it, but how serious are they doing it and are big economies doing it? And the answer is yes. And the US and the UK are actually behind. The European Central Bank of the largest central banks is furthest ahead. They've signaled that they would like to have a digital euro by the middle of the decade. Other key findings are that many countries are exploring more international payment systems. It's not just the retail central bank digital currency side, how I buy my cup of coffee, how I buy a sandwich. It's the wholesale, the bank to bank transfers. And we see a lot of interest between countries cooperating with each other, China, the UAE, others, in finding alternatives to the current way that money is transferred. Now people use the SWIFT system, they use other systems. There's a desire to use a central bank digital currency to find alternatives to that system. We are headed to a significant interoperability problem in the future. And that can sound a little you know, wonky and technical, but what it means is that if all these countries, 100 countries are having different models of a digital version of their fiat, when we start trying to exchange this across border and some are using distributed ledgers and some are not, and some have privacy protections and some don't, and some have caps on how much you can spend and some don't, we're headed to a big problem here. Let's start with a few basic things. Can you tell us a little bit about what the key drivers are behind the digitalization of currency? Is it just part of the digitalization of everything else? It's a great question. You know, So when we think of why did countries move from 35 two years ago to now 105, something happened. Now, there's two main drivers. The first is cryptocurrency. And this is the one that gets talked about the most. Central banks see what's happening with digital assets. They see what's happening with cryptocurrency and stable coins. And they say, well, hold on a second. If I want to retain my monetary sovereignty, if I want to understand how money is flowing in my economy, I need to have my own option here. And I need to have a standard setting option to make sure I can do this in a way that I think is safe, that these digital assets have shown interest in innovation, but not from a government backside. So cryptocurrency and the, what governments perceive as a threat of cryptocurrencies is one motivation. But there's a second motivation, and this is what doesn't get covered nearly as much, and that's the pandemic. Economies around the world delivered an extraordinary amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus over the past two years, unprecedented amount. And what they discovered as they were doing that was there are a lot of inefficiencies in the system. We certainly saw this in the United States. Checks were sent to people who didn't live at places anymore. Checks were sent to people who weren't alive. It took six weeks to get fiscal uh, stimulus. So countries saw, hold on a second, is there technology here that can help me do this better? And can I have a central bank digital currency so so I can deliver this stimulus check or this unemployment benefit in two hours instead of two weeks. And if that's an option, countries want to explore it. And as we head into potential now global recession in the year ahead in 2023, I think that motivation will become parallel with the cryptocurrency motivation. Both are equally important to central bankers. Josh, thanks for that. Before we jump in with both feet, a couple of more basic questions if I can, both at the same time, if you don't mind. And one of them is, what is the difference between a central bank digital currency and crypto itself and all those names and memes and things that we see out there. And then secondly, Josh, if I can already pay for something digitally or electronically, and if I can transfer money to your bank account from my bank account, what's the difference between that and central bank digital currencies? So two great questions. And so let's start with the definitional one first. 
when we think about this, I like to think about it in three categories. The first is cryptocurrency. And here we have currencies using blockchain technology, but not backed by any fiat, not backed by a dollar or the pound or even a commodity that stabilizes them. And they get their value through the minings and the algorithms, the things that give them scarcity and create value of them. And these are cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, of course, the most famous, but many out there that have captured so much of the world's attention over the past five years. The second category is stable coins, using the technology of cryptocurrencies, the blockchain, but basing the value off of fiat. Could be the dollar. Now there's talk about doing a digital euro. You could even have a stable coin based on gold. You could have it based on oil. But something that has a more stable day-to-day, I know the value of what I'm trading, but I'm using the technology to verify the transactions of the blockchain. Third category, what we're talking about, central bank digital currencies. Now the central bank is saying, my fiat, my dollar, my pound, my euro, I'm creating a digital version of that. And this is like a digital analog to cash, right? Digital analog to paper cash. Because when you transact money now, you're transacting commercial banking money. The central bank has worked with the commercial bank. It's not a liability of the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England. It's a liability of your commercial bank. Cash is different. It's a liability directly of the central bank that has all different implications we can talk about. But that's a central bank digital currency. Important to note, though, some central banks use distributed ledger technology to develop it, and some don't. So just because it's a central bank digital currency, it doesn't have to be a cryptocurrency by definition. That's a little confusing, but I hope that's helpful to the first part of your question. When I pay now, I can transfer something on Venmo or PayPal. There's all different apps that we can transfer money. It's electronic. And this is really a difference between electronic currency and digital currency. And what's really the difference at the end of the day? One is that it's a liability of the central bank, as we talked about. And so therefore, the government could use it to basically deliver stimulus and unemployment benefits, pay taxes, direct government to citizen transfers could be done in a faster, more efficient way than they're done now. But the real value is on the back end, the thing that people don't see. Because we lose somewhere between 1% to 2% of GDP annually in the U.S. because of frictions. So when we have this transaction between our banks, you and I don't see it, but it takes our banks days to actually settle that transaction. And all of that gets passed on to us through cost, credit card fees, and different ways that banks pass on these costs to consumers over the course of a year. You don't really feel it. If you can remove that friction from the system, there can be hundreds of billions of savings, both in domestic and the global economy. So will it change that much how you pay for a cup of coffee? Not really. If you flash your phone up now, they have a receptacle. But will it change how the plumbing of the global financial system works behind the scenes? The answer is it could. And I guess who has ownership over what that plumbing system looks like is critical to the world yes. that we're evolving into. Who are the standard setters going to be? And for a long time, the conversation was that the G20 would be the best group representing 90% of global GDP, emerging markets, and advanced economies. They have a payments working group. However, over the past few months, as we see with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and now the inability of the G20 to meet effectively, there's an open question of whether that's still the best platform. So who is going to step up? Is it the International Monetary Fund? Are there other standard setting bodies that can say, this is what regulation, safe digital asset innovation should look like? That question has not been answered, but it's one of the most pressing challenges the world is facing from a digital asset perspective. So Josh, we spend a lot of the time at the moment advising our clients on 
a very fraught, divided, uncertain geopolitical environment and one in which there aren't many institutions with a, you know, an international mandate, which have a huge amount of credibility at the moment, is the one that, that could emerge to, to set the standards for, for the world on this? You know, there isn't one right now. I still would, if I had to bet, bet on the G20, but the US has to figure out how to reconstitute the G20 in a way that doesn't let Russia's involvement debilitate the organization. But to me, it makes sense to do this through a fora that has India at the table, China at the table, Brazil at the table, because if you want some international regulations to be adopted, you have to recognize that these countries are ahead of the Western economies. They're ahead of the UK and the US. So you can't just from a G7 perspective say, this is what a digital asset should look like. And then Brazil and India come to the table and say, we already built one. Sorry, you're late to the table. So to me, the G20 is still the best body, but there has to be a serious thought given of how to do this effectively, given the current situation. Josh, can we bring the private sector into this conversation for a second? If the governments of the world sort themselves out and, and the central banks and the, the multinational, the multilateral organizations sort of sort themselves out on this, what happens to the way companies interact cross-border or the way companies and countries interact with each other? Is this a, a disruptive technology or is this a, a facilitating technology? So there's two types of private sector to think about. First is the banks themselves. We have in the UK and the US and many countries around the world, a fractional reserve lending system that has built our economies. Credit has fueled our economies. And the way banks are able to do that is because they can lend more than is on their balance sheets. And if you take away what's on their balance sheets from a commercial bank liability and make it a central bank liability, you are potentially introducing huge risk to those commercial banks because you are taking away from their bottom line and therefore taking away the amount they can lend out for everyone to get mortgages, to do everything we do in an economy. So the question is, can you develop a central bank digital currency that doesn't negatively impact the commercial banking system? And the way most countries have figured it out through our research is to deliver the CBDCs through the commercial banks, right? So you don't open up your phone and have a Bank of England app and you don't have a Federal Reserve app on your phone, those banks don't want to be customer facing. You know, Chuck, the last thing they want is for you to call them at three in the morning and say, you forgot your password to your, your Bank of England or your FedEx, <laughs> right? They, they, this is not what they're equipped to do. Uh, so they want to work through the commercial banks and other fintech providers who are now getting into this space. And this can be a way to bring more customers into the digital currency ecosystem. So I think there's a way for this to benefit the commercial banking system, traditional banking, and utilize the benefits of the new technology. Now, more broadly, the private sector harnessing the innovation. How do you do it? What you have to think about from a private sector perspective is, how do I accept all forms of payment? How do I accept CBDCs? How do I accept stablecoins? How do I accept cryptocurrencies? And how do I do that in a way that doesn't cost me a lot and makes it really attractive to my customers that when they come in, I accept everything? And so this is the question for private sector right now and retail especially. I want to know that I have one wallet. My wallet hosts all of my different types of currency. I can exchange them quickly and easily, and I know they'll be accepted everywhere. What I don't want to get is a fractured system where, oh, you take this stable coin, you don't take that crypto, and now I'm traveling overseas and I can't convert this. So the, co the companies that are most flexible and ability to harness all of this quickly are the ones that are going to benefit. So Josh, one of the things that makes this frictionless is right now pretty much everybody trades in the dollar. So what, what does this mean for the dollar 
as as the primary vehicle for global trade? I mean, how are we going to buy and sell oil? So, you know, one reason why I think the Fed has not felt a lot of urgency on this issue until recently, that's changed in the last six months, but until recently is your point, Chuck. Everyone uses the dollar. There's no real alternative as an international reserve currency. Countries can experiment with CBDCs all they want, but at the end of the day, people are going to have to transfer these things through a dollar one way or the other. That is true for now. But when you start seeing what I talked about before, the difference in the wholesale central bank digital currency system, the way banks are trying to transact with themselves, I think the US realizes, well, hold on a second. Over time, if China could transfer a CBDC to South Africa and not go through SWIFT, which we have oversight from a US perspective, that's kind of a risk. My sanctions policies might not be as effective as they are right now if no one really has to go through. And if the CBDC doesn't have to go through a dollar at some point, I've lost a lot of leverage. So in the near term, this is not an immediate threat. The dollar isn't going away as an international reserve currency, not as a means of settlement in international trade. The thing to be worried about is fracturing, where there's a multipolar system. There's a little more renminbi usage. Now the digital euro is rising. Now there's all these other digital currencies. And you just have a weakening of the dollar's influence in the global economy, not a replacement. And I think that's the risk that policymakers in the U.S. have woken up to in the past year. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. Josh, what sort of time frame do you think that companies should have in mind when they're wondering when that risk of fracturing might materialize? So it's an, you know, the fracturing itself, I think, is in the near term. And what I mean is that countries may be asked to choose soon. And that's what we want to avoid. So what you want to avoid is a situation where you're operating in China, say, for example, and the government says you have to use ECNY, digital yuan. Oh, and then the US government is saying, if you use digital yuan, you can't use a dollar-based system. And so you want to avoid a 5G, like a Huawei situation, where we get into these different technology silos. And because one company or one country is using one, a different company or country feels like they can't interact with it. I think that's a near-term challenge because of the rapid expansion of ECNY. So those specific friction points for companies are coming soon. The broader challenge of dollar usage, weakening of dollar usage, this is a medium-term horizon type thing. You're looking over the next decade you know, already. So this is not something that's going to change overnight. What does a digital dollar or any other digital currency backed by a central bank do for money supply? Is it inflationary? Does this involve taking, and forgive me for a fairly naive question, but does this involve taking paper money off the market? How do you manage money supply when it's digital? It's a great question. It's one that's taking up a lot of time at central banks right now, thinking through it. What we see is that central banks who have rolled out a CBDC and broader usage is that it's replaced one-to-one with paper cash money supply. This is what happens in China. So you were trying to not add money supply, but instead 
transact and transfer money supply from paper cash to now digital cash. So you were not making it inflationary in theory, and you were not adding to the money supply. You were just replacing, substituting. What it can do, and this is a potential of digital currency that central bankers are very hesitant to talk about, is make interest rate transmission more effective. Because you can set interest rates on programmable money on digital currency. The way monetary policy is transmitted in our economies now is a somewhat you know, attenuated process of, in the Federal Reserve, we set this benchmark lending rate. This is supposed to transfer over into other markets. Then the mortgage rates increase, as we see in the US. There might be a faster and more seamless way to do that, which would affect how central bankers raise interest rates, how rapidly they raise interest rates. You know, we always say monetary policy operates with a lag. Maybe it wouldn't operate with as much of a lag with a central bank digital currency. Something to think about. I think it makes a lot of people nervous, which is why most people don't talk about that potential usage of a central bank digital currency. Josh, you might feel like you've covered this already. So if you have, that's fine. But I was just wondering about any other risks that companies should have in mind beyond the regulatory environment and geopolitical risk associated with government-backed digital currencies. Who gets to distribute CBDC and who doesn't? And so that's a big question, right? Because in the US, I think if we end up doing this, it's not just going to be our Bank of Americas and our retail banks now. It's going to be a broader sort of ecosystem of folks who can distribute CBDCs. And I think being part of who we as a Federal Reserve or the Bank of England says is a trusted distributor of this digital currency is a really important thing to think about because that will change the whole playing field for these banks or these providers over the years ahead. The other risk is capital flight and run on money. Let's say you have your CBDC. What a lot of countries do is say you can only hold so much of it. Well, let's say there's a pandemic or the global financial crisis. Boy, you know, I'd really like to get out of all my other money and I'd like to go into CBDC because I know that's a liability of the government. I know that's a liability of the central bank. This to me feels like the safest asset in time of crisis. You could have a run on the commercial banking system. And this is so a systemic potential risk to the economy. And what countries do to stop that is cap the amount of holding. I can only hold 5,000 of CBDC. I can only hold 2,500 of CBDC. So these are some of the macroeconomic risk that we're thinking through in the deployment of a central bank digital currency. Final issue I'll raise, probably the most important, is privacy. People do not want the government to know how they spend their money in the United States. I think that's true in the United Kingdom. This is true in the Eurozone. And so it's different if my bank might be able to know how I spend my money versus my government knows how I spend my money. And there's all different technical and design choices being made now. We just wrote a major research paper on this of how you can make sure that the government can't see what you're doing, even if it's a central bank digital currency. That's a really important question to answer. Otherwise, you won't have usage and adoption of these products. I wonder if the twin of that question, though, is also security. And that is, even though these are backed by governments, and that makes this sound fairly serious, and that you've got you know, the full weight of, of a federal government behind it, how do we know, you know, you can counterfeit paper money, can you counterfeit digital money? I think it would be harder, but not impossible, is the way to think about it. And we just wrote this paper on cybersecurity on that specific issue. Another threat is, could you have a cyber attack? on your digital currency? Could all the money in Chuck's wallet, which he thought was $5,000, suddenly become worth two cents, right? Because of a cyber attack that changes the value 
overnight. These are risks. I'm going to wait for inflation to do that, Josh. <laughs> One way or the other, it's going to happen. But so, you know, these are potential risks. They can all be mitigated through safety and design choices. Already securing the financial system is a huge cybersecurity priority for central banks and finance ministries. So, you know, the answer to the question is all of this has to be thought of, carefully considered. Uh, but it, it is something that's keeping central bankers up at night. I think that's fair to say. Is this just another front opening up in big global geopolitical rivalry? I, I think it's if we don't handle it correctly, it can be a really major geopolitical rivalry flashpoint because you are combining technology, which we already see as a geopolitical fracture point, 5G technology as an example, with international finance and the role of the dollar in the international system. Putting those two things together, if done well, can have a better digital currency ecosystem, better transfers between banks, reducing friction in the system, if done poorly, can fracture an international financial system. So I see it as a huge risk. Will government-backed digital currencies help foster a more inclusive financial system? So this is a question that has been raised for years on central bank digital currency, back to when I was working at the IMF on these issues. And what I've realized in my research is that not all CBDCs are created equal. And what I mean by that is that different economies have different uses for a central bank digital currency. So if you are developing one in Nigeria or in Thailand, it can really bring more people into the banking system. It can do that. And there are hurdles because you have to have internet connectivity, mobile phones, but there are ways to bring more people who have not been banked before into the banking system through a central bank digital currency. I'm not sure that's the case in an economy like the US or the UK because we have one in 14 unbanked, underbanked in the United States. I'm not sure that because a CBDC is issued by the Federal Reserve that those people are suddenly gonna become part of the banking system. So in this economy in the United States, I talk about financial financial security versus financial inclusion. What I mean by that is that you can have faster payments. So you don't have to wait two weeks for a check. You can get paid one fourteenth of your check every day, and that doesn't cost your company anything. You can have the unemployment benefits, the stimulus, the taxes done faster. That provides security to everyone. It helps the economy. So I think it's important to distinguish how a central bank digital currency would be used based on the type of economy where it's being deployed. That's making me feel like technology and cyber risk are going to be absolutely even more significant to us all. The vulnerabilities and impact of infiltration is going to be enormous, isn't it? I'll share the paper we did, but I do think it's a huge risk. I think there's a lot of ways you can design to protect, but you can imagine from a you know someone who wants to do harm and destabilize an economy, how big a target this would be for them. And instead of just thinking of like, okay, they're going to take the Fed down or the Bank of England down, that's a huge undertaking. What if they just take one company's payments offline for CBDC? You know, so there's there's little things that can be done that are damaging. Josh, this has been a fantastic and really interesting conversation. Where can we find more information about this from the Atlantic Council's website? So visit the Atlantic Council Geoeconomic Center. There you can find our CBDC tracker. You can find our paper on cybersecurity and all our work on digital assets. Josh, it's been a great, great pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Josh. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well. 
such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.